All right, so today we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. And you'll notice that uh, the very first word of this book is Peter. And the Apostle Peter penned this particular letter to suffering Christians. And you need to understand, as far as we know, it's taking place just before this really dark cloud of persecution was was uh, starting to gather on the horizon, so to speak. You see, Emperor Nero was seeking scapegoats to really divert the attention uh, from, from the public of Rome, had the suspicion that Nero was the one who burned Rome to the ground. And uh, they're probably right. but uh, And that was in uh, A.D. 64. You, uh, how do you, some, some people wonder, well, how in the world could Emperor Nero uh, divert the attention away from him? Well, he, he did it by basically blaming the Christians. He didn't like Christians anyway. And so as a result of, of that in AD 64, there was official persecution uh, of the Christians. Nero was a terrible man. <laughs> An ungodly man. He did things like he encased Christians in wax. Some of the Christians he burnt at the stake and he would put them up on a, uh, basically put a tree in 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 the ground, and he put the Christian up on the tree, and, and he burned the Christians just to light his gardens. Uh, some of the Christians were crucified, Peter being one of them, by the way, as far as you know. Uh, history tells us Peter was crucified upside down there in Rome by Nero. There, Others were uh, just uh, fed to wild beasts there in the Colosseum, or places like the Colosseum, just let the lions and leopards and so forth just, just attack the Christians. And so it was a result of Nero's persecution that Peter himself was martyred. But before he died, Peter wrote this magnificent letter to believers, to to Christians in in the outlying regions of the Roman Empire who were suffering and and the intensity of the persecution was, was starting to intensify. And so, my friend, let me ask you this. Can you relate in, in some way? Are you suffering? And if you can relate in some way to the various persecutions and sufferings and trials they're going through, well, then you need to listen closely because God has a message for you. So throughout the centuries, Christians have benefited from the Bible's wise counsel in books like First Peter. And so we need to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this text what can we apply to our life? Well, let's, let's have a read of the text here, and then we'll jump in. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. Notice it's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven 
for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you, to those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That ends that paragraph. So here's uh, my theme, and I've worded it in a couple different ways. I hope I can prove this to you from the text. Here's the theme, that God gives a secure salvation which produces joy in trials. And I kind of worded that a different way for you. Another way you could say it is that because God gives a secure salvation, believers can be joyful in trials. Now, Peter talks about the recipients of this particular letter. Remember, he's called them exiles. just means they were resident aliens. They were sojourners. Some Bibles, like in chapter 2, for example, call them strangers and pilgrims. These were believers, Christians, living way up in in the northern part of modern-day Turkey. They were citizens of heaven because of their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, They were not permanent residents on earth. It's a good thing to keep in mind, by the way, when you're suffering. And Christians have standards. You say, and this is, this is one reason we're pilgrims and strangers and exiles. We do have different standards and values different from the world. We serve a different master. And so this gives opportunity both as a witness as well as it gives an opportunity for the enemy to attack. And some of the readers were experiencing sufferings because of their, their different master, their different lifestyle. The believers were scattered people and the They're scattered here in the five different parts of this Roman Empire, which we call modern-day Turkey. So that's who Peter's writing to here when he mentions them in verse 1. But Peter goes on to talk about the source of salvation. This This is the major theme of this section of Scripture. He wants to encourage people who are suffering to remind them, to tell them about their salvation. He uses different words talking about the salvation. He uses words like inheritance, their living hope. 
and he uses the word salvation as well. So what is the source of salvation? We need to understand where does salvation come from? Where does eternal life come from? Well, notice in verse 1 that believers, first of all, have been chosen by God the Father. All Christians have been chosen by God the Father. They are elect exiles. Notice verse 2, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you're a believer, you are elect. You have been foreordained, the Bible says. And you say, what is foreknowledge? Now, there's a lot of confusion on this, even amongst Christians. Uh, here's, here's what the word means. Foreknowledge uh, just involves God's predetermining to have a relationship with some individuals. And notice, by the way, foreknowledge is based on God's eternal plan. It is divine purpose of God that brings salvation for sinners to fulfillment. Some people got this idea that that God's foreknowledge is He's looking down the quarters of time. He knows all things, of course. He knows who's going to uh, become a Christian. And so His foreknowledge is based on our response. But that is not what the Bible says. It's not just merely some advanced knowledge that observes how people respond to God's offer of redemption. That is not what foreknowledge is. God predetermines who the chosen ones are. He's chosen to to save a, a people for His name. So, number two, believers, not only they they foreordained and, and chosen by God. Notice, made holy by the Spirit. Verse 2 says, made holy by the Spirit. It's a sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, you're set apart from sin unto God. That's the idea there. And So the outworking of God's choice of the elect begins in time here by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You can't become a Christian without the Spirit's work in you. And so this work, by the way, includes all that the Spirit produces in salvation. It's a multifaceted work. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who produces the faith in you so that you you choose to believe in God. He's the one who works repentance in you so that you change your mind in regard to your sins, so that you no longer love your sin, but you love God. He's the one who regenerates you. Jesus talked about that in when he, when he was talking to Nicodemus, remember, he told him, you, you have to be born again. It's the Spirit working in you. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. But the Spirit also, Romans 8 says, He is the one who adopts you into God's family. See, you're not born into God's family. You have to be adopted into His family. And it's the Holy Spirit that does all that. And so thus the plan of God becomes a reality in the life of the believer. Because the Holy Spirit does that work. But notice the third person of the Trinity is mentioned there in verse 2 as well. We see believers have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So God the Father elects, chooses. Holy Spirit changes you. Does that, that work in you. But it's because Jesus came. Lived the perfect life. You should have lived and died as your perfect sacrifice. And so... Notice it's obedience to Jesus Christ here. By the way, that's not what saves you. It is the effect. It is the byproduct 
of the Holy Spirit's work in you. It's the byproduct of God's election, if you will. Otherwise, we would be able to work for our salvation, which, of course, is not possible. However, but notice this. The practical component here of election is the security of the believer. The, you are secure because it starts with God. God is the one who elects. The, you don't save yourself. God saves you. And that's why your, your eternal security is secure. And so God indicates here the security here when He says that the elect are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. that by the way, that, that goes back to the, what happened in the Old Testament with God's people Israel when, when uh, the blood was sprinkled on them. It was a sign of the covenant, if you will. Uh, ratifying that, that covenant that God made with His people Israel at, at Mount Sinai. So believers have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so this is the source of salvation. Now let's have a look at the security of salvation. In other words, can you and I know that salvation is secure? Or can, is, is there some lingering doubt? Can I know 100% sure that I'm saved? that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven? How are you going to know that? Well, verses 3 to 5 talk about the, how secure salvation is. Notice verse 3 tells us, first of all, that God is the source of salvation. Again, notice verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, according to His great mercy that He has caused us to be born again. So God's the source. Peter starts with God. You want, to encourage, you want to be encouraged through your suffering and your trials? Look to God, not at your circumstances. He is the source. He has given us something that cannot be taken away. Can't be taken away. Reminds me of the pastor, by the way. There was a pastor walking through New York City, and a thief came up to him and and the thief told this pastor, uh, your, your money or your life? Now, I don't remember if he had a knife or a gun. It doesn't really matter. But he was, gonna, he was threatening to kill this pastor if he didn't give him his money. And the pastor said, I'm sorry, but you can't threaten me with heaven. You cannot threaten me with heaven. In other words, <laughs> go ahead, kill the body. Absent from the body, the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. You can't threaten me with that. That's not a threat. <laughs> the pastor understood the source of his salvation and how secure it was. But verse 3 also tells us that God's mercy was the motive for salvation. Why does God save anybody? He doesn't have to save you. He didn't have to do that. But the motive is God's mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. And He also withholds what we do deserve. You and I deserve hell. All of us deserve hell. We deserve eternal condemnation. The good people don't go to heaven. Because Jesus said He's the only one who's good. So how do you get to heaven? You don't get to heaven by being good. You need someone who is good. It's God's mercy. It's the motive here behind our salvation. And number three... Notice that it's the new birth here is the means of spiritual transformation. 
is Jesus said, you must be born again. And we see, as we do in other places in Scripture, that's what verse 3 is telling us. God's caused us to be born again. He's the one who does that work, that transforming work inside you. It's a spiritual transformation. And then number four, the new birth has a result. Notice the result is in a living hope. Not a dead one. Not a I hope so, I hope kind of a hope. But it's a living hope. And the reason, by the way, it's living hope is because, notice the next phrase, it is because someone has died and rose again. Of course, that's Jesus. Because Jesus is alive and He's in heaven, you and I have a living hope. So that's the fifth point there, that salvation's guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. If Christ was still dead and was still in the tomb, you and I don't have a hope. So the good news is all Christians, when they die, know that there is a a glorious future yet to come. And then number six, salvation is, we see, is kept secure in heaven for believers. Your salvation is, you couldn't save yourself and neither can you keep yourself saved. See, God saves you, therefore He's the one who does the keeping for you. Oh, praise God for that. And Peter is just so amazed by this. He he can't even put it in positive words. He comes up with three negatives to, to explain just how beautiful and impregnable and secure your salvation is. Notice the three words. They're beautiful. They're, they are the triumvirate. I don't know how else to describe that because Peter says your salvation is death-proof. It is death-proof because he uses the word imperishable. Imperishable. In other words, imperishable just means your salvation is not able to be destroyed. Not able to be destroyed. You can't do it. Satan can't do it. This world can't do it. There is nothing that can destroy your salvation. It is death-proof. Number two, it's sin-proof. Peter uses the word undefiled. In other words, there's nothing that can pollute it. Nothing can corrupt it. It is totally pure, undefiled. The the idea just means it's not polluted. No imperfections, no disease, nothing coming in and changing it in any way. But Peter says it's also time-proof. So this is beautiful. Death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. He uses the word unfading. Unfading. Our world, by the way, we we see all those things in our world, don't we? You see them in your own body. You see them everywhere, right? Everything is, there is nothing that's death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof these days. But your salvation is. And so Peter says, your salvation's unfading. In other words, not subject to decay. Unlike your forehead, my forehead gets wrinkles, spots. My body's fading away. My house is fading away. The car's rusting. You know, my hair's going gray, right? It's just everything around me is decaying. But not my salvation. Because <laughs> God's keeping it for me. It's, it's, in fact, it's not even here on earth. It's kept secure in heaven. 
the perfect bank of heaven. And last of all, Peter says that God's power here assures that believers will safely arrive in heaven. You say, that's great, my salvation's kept in heaven, but how do I know I'm even going to get there? How do I know for sure I'm going to get there? Well, it's because of God's power, verse 5 says. It's who by God's power are being guarded. By the way, that's continuous. God's continually doing this. Assures us that when we die, He's going to take us to be with Himself. So that's the security of salvation. But Peter goes on to write about believers who are suffering. Can there be joy even in the midst of our trials and suffering and persecution? So he talks about the joy of salvation in verses 6 to 9. Does a secure salvation make any difference for you? Even when you're suffering, does it make a difference? When you're going through a trial... Is there something solid that you can hold on to that is not going to move? Well, Peter actually gives five perspectives on joy so that believers can triumph even through the worst circumstances. Peter and his wife rejoiced as they were crucified. and They encouraged each other, reminded each other to to remember our Lord. Even as they were being crucified, they did not deny the faith. They remembered the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who forgave him, even though Peter had denied him earlier, years before that. Peter has something to hold on to. He understands joy. By the way, as as we saw in the family project earlier this morning, there's a big difference between happiness and joy. Big difference. Happiness is usually based on outward circumstances. But joy comes from God. It's an inner thing. And it doesn't matter what the outward circumstances are like. And so Peter reminds us of the joy of salvation. And the first thing he mentions here in verse 6 is that joy comes from a protected inheritance. See, your inheritance is protected by God. And he reminds them of this in verse 6 when he says, In this you rejoice. In this, what's Peter talking about in verse 6 when he says, in this? Well, you have to look at the context. In this is referring back to the previous verses. He's talking about a believer's eternal inheritance. So in verses 3 and 3 through 5, he talks about that secure salvation, the living hope, this inheritance that comes from God. So, my friends, Can a believer have joy in trial? Is that possible? Can believers read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? Can can believers actually go and be burnt at the stake and sing hymns of praise to God and quote Scripture and tell the one burning them at the stake, I forgive you? Yes, (laughs) It's happened many, many times, thousands of times. You, you just read books like the Fox's Book of Martyrs. A believer can have joy in trials. And Peter reminds us, hey, we must focus on the protected inheritance. That's what will bring joy. And number two, joy comes from a genuine faith. It comes from a genuine faith. Because in verse 6 he says, in this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter talks about four features of trials here in verse 6. Notice, first of all, Peter says that trials are temporary. They're temporary. That's good news because there's light at the end of the tunnel for suffering Christians. Because he says, now for a little while. And you read the other apostles who wrote Scripture, like Paul, he talks about they're just temporary, they're fleeting. So trials are temporary, but notice Peter also says trials serve a purpose. They do. He talks about them as if necessary. You say, well, what are the the purposes of trials? Well, trials reveal a genuine faith in God. Notice it's revealing, is your faith genuine? Is it real? Is it for real? And so God uses trials to humble us like He did with Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He humbled Paul. God uses trials the same way for us. We need to be humble. We need to subject ourselves to God's will. And so it's revealing, are you for real? Are you a Christian? And number three, trials bring physical and mental pain. That's the idea, by the way, when you see verse 6 there, it mentions that phrase, been grieved. Been grieved. The idea in, in, in those verses there is it's not just a physical thing, but, but as a result of suffering, there comes great mental pain. And God's talking about both of those things, trial bringing both physical and mental pain. And then number four, trials come in many, many forms. Notice he, he says there's various trials there. You say, well, what forms might trials come? Well, there will be seasons in life where you're going to lack provision. Uh, you you might wonder where, you know, where your next meal's coming from. You might wonder how am I going to pay that bill. Uh, you might lack power of some sort, physical or spiritual. You might lack position in life. You know, you might want to climb the corporate ladder or whatever it might be. You, you might be lacking in, in protection. You might feel very vulnerable, and a lot of times we are. Uh, there might you might be lacking some sense of permanence. You know, maybe your job's on the line, or you know, you, you, maybe maybe your marriage is 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 questionable. Your your family life is in upheaval, or whatever it might be. You, a lot of people lack that sense of permanence, and that that is a form of trial. At times we receive verbal or physical abuse like, like people here in Turkey. And, and they were receiving the physical and uh, verbal abuse because of God's Word. They were standing strong in the gospel, standing for truth. They were believers, and, and as a result of that, they received verbal and physical abuse. Another form includes... Some of us, sometimes we have to watch a loved one just waste away. 
might watch their bodies waste away, their minds waste away, and eventually their life waste away. That's hard. That's a form of pain and suffering. Another form includes we just have to fend off the attacks of Satan, the wiles of the devil coming at us. We have to wear the armor of God to defend ourselves against his attacks. It's hard. It's not easy. Those are various forms of trials. And so understanding God's purposes for us through those trials is very important. See, if you understand the trial has a purpose, it helps you to deal with it, doesn't it? See, we need to understand through trials we are tempered, just like a blacksmith might temper the steel. In other words, what I'm saying is, the extracts of the world are removed from us through trials, and God is making you fit for heaven through the trials. I'll give you an earthly example. Hopefully this will be helpful. Let's take a, a raw form of iron ore. Not very attractive, not worth very much. Just a simple chunk of iron ore uh, I've been told it might be worth around $5. However, you take that simple chunk of iron ore, the same one, and a blacksmith can make that into a horseshoe, maybe worth $10. And if that iron ore is then tempered even more and made into useful objects, let's say needles used for sewing, then it becomes worth $3,000. And if it's tempered more, the iron ore is turned into springs for watches. I've been told it could be worth $250,000. What's the difference? How did we go from a chunk of iron ore worth $5 to things that are worth $250,000? What made the difference? It was the tempering. It was the work and the heat that went into the iron ore. You say, well, what made the difference? It's just simply the amount of heat by which that iron ore was tempered and honed. Here's the point, my friends. What what Peter is saying is that our faith is far more precious to God than than a, a chunk of iron ore. And according to this text, by the way, did you notice your faith is even more precious than gold that's refined in the fire? And so be encouraged, my friends. You may find yourself at times in your life, you might feel like a chunk of iron ore that's been put on the anvil and you're just getting pounded, 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 put in the fire, pound, pound, more heat, pound, pound, and you're just being tempered and honed. You might feel like, whoa, this hurts. What's the point? You might find yourself on that anvil of suffering, but it's helpful to know that God is at work. There is purpose. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. And for God, by the way, that faith you have can be honed and it is something of eternal value. Number three, Peter tells us that joy comes from a promised reward. See, if you recognize that this life is just not it. You don't want your best life now. You want, it. You want your inheritance in the, in the next life. See, Peter tells us the end of verse 7, something good is coming, and it can be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Notice it's at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So Peter's focus here is not on Christians honoring God. That's not the point. True faith is will receive eternal honor from God. God will honor His people. And it's interesting, the word praise there is, is actually recognition from Jesus. It's a public commendation. He knows. He rewards His people. The word glory is beautiful as well. It's a fervent admiration in the future life. Uh, the other word mentioned there is the word honor. It's a place of distinction in God's kingdom. See, not everybody's the same in God's kingdom as far as rewards. God knows and He rewards accordingly. And of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ there is referring to Jesus' second coming. When He comes, He's bringing His rewards with Him and He's going to give you what you deserve. And so joy comes from knowing that. And then number four, Joy comes from the personal fellowship with Christ. Joy comes from personal fellowship with Christ. See, unlike Peter, you and I haven't seen him, verse 8 says, but I still love him. I do not now see him, but it says that you can believe in him. You can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, you and I haven't seen Jesus, but that, that doesn't matter. We still love Him. We still believe. See, joy comes from a personal fellowship with Christ. We know He's real. We know He's alive. I talk to Him. He talks to me. There's a real love there. There's a trust there. And love and trust, by the way, are two crucial ingredients in any meaningful relationship. They're vital to the joy that results from that meaningful relationship. See, love here, by the way, mentioned in verse 8, is agape love. It's the love of the will. It's God's love. It's the noblest form of love. It's also a present tense, meaning it is something that's continuous. And then Peter commended his readers to trust in Christ even though they couldn't see Him. Joy comes from this personal fellowship with Christ. And next we see in verse 9 that joy comes from a present deliverance. We have a present deliverance even in this life. Because notice verse 9 says, you can, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, by the way, is not looking at the future here. He's looking at the here and now. Salvation refers to the believer's constant present deliverance. You say, well, how is a believer delivered? How is a Christian delivered and rescued? Well, three ways, okay? You can think of salvation in three ways. Number one, see, Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin. He saves you from the penalty of sin. That, that's your past salvation where you were, you were justified. You were declared to no longer be a sinner, but you receive the righteousness of Christ. Your, this was your conversion, your regeneration, your salvation in that sense. But see, God also saves us from the power of sin. That's Romans 6-8. to eight. See, you're saved from the penalty of sin. That's Romans 3-5. through five. But see, God doesn't just leave you there. He is saving you from the power of sin. 
That's your present salvation, the sanctification, if you will, where you are continually being set apart from sin unto God. But then there's the third aspect of salvation, which we, uh, which we call the presence of sin. See, God saves you even from the presence of sin. That's your future salvation, where you're glorified. When you see Jesus, you're going to be made like Him. So this verse here is talking about those first two aspects. See, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, it's the first two aspects. You're saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. You're not glorified yet. You're delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. So should a believer lose their joy when when they know they've been saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin? Well, there's no reason for a believer to lose their joy when they can tap into this truth. Every believer should have joy because they have a genuine faith. Fellowship with Christ. You've been delivered from sin. You have a protected inheritance. And you have a promised reward. Those are all the things that Peter tells you that you have as a believer. And because of that, you can have joy even in the midst of trials. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk about the greatness of salvation in verses 10 to 12. So how is salvation great? Well, here's Peter. Peter's got some very interesting things here in verses 10 through 12. And he's revealing three truths from salvation's past in, in the hopes here that the, the souls of these recipients would be restored and that they would understand what God has done for them. And as a result, they would have gratitude to God praise God for what He has done for them. First of all, notice Peter, verses 10 and 11, he says that the prophets labored their entire lives to present the true gospel. That's what he says in verse 10 when he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now who are these prophets? Peter's talking about and why should we care by the way about Israel's prophets well the the prophets were some of Israel's ancient office holders going all the way back to the first one who's Moses what did they do what did the prophets of Israel do they stood in the presence of God to receive God's word and then they were to be God's messengers they, they were to speak God's truth in the presence of the people. Now, why is Peter sharing all this? What, what's his point? Well, he wants to encourage his readers. Peter's telling his readers that the prophets spent their days searching out salvation's fulfillment. See, they didn't have the whole big picture like we have. They didn't have the New Testament. They knew that Messiah was coming. The Old Testament tells us that. They didn't understand it fully, though. But they spent their days searching out salvation's fulfillments. And so they, what did they do? They studied the Old Testament Scriptures. They looked long and hard in the Old Testament to find the Gospel. You can find the Gospel in the Old Testament. You can lead an Orthodox Jew to Christ in the Old Testament. He's there. Jesus said so in Luke 24. 
So what did the prophets find as they looked long and hard in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, they found a suffering Messiah. One of the obvious places is you find it in the Psalms, Isaiah chapter 53. And so Peter talks about this in, in verse 12. Uh, well, sorry, verse, verse 11, that they, they predicted the sufferings of Christ. And so for the discouraged believer in Peter's audience, this reminder would have been encouraging. You say, why? Well, the difficult life they were living was actually mirrored in the life of Christ. Christ didn't escape suffering when he was on earth, and neither do we. Well, how else do we see the greatness of salvation? Well, Peter, number two, mentions that preachers have traveled around the globe delivering the gospel. He mentions that in verse 12. He talks about these, these various ones who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter tries to encourage his readers here by introducing those who preach the gospel to them. God sent more than just prophets. He sent preachers. He sent apostles in particular. Why? Well, Peter here, why is he talking about this? Peter wants to prove God's love for them. That God is not absent and, and, and distant and far off. He cares. He wanted them to understand that uh, this truth so they wouldn't be discouraged during difficult days. And the third thing is very interesting. As he talks about this great salvation, he mentions in verse 12 that angels are investigating what God has done for believers. He just ends this, this paragraph here in verse 12 by saying, things into which angels long to look. What things? Well, he, he's talking about your salvation. Because he said at the beginning of verse 10, concerning this salvation, this is what angels long to look into. They're investigating it. It's like they're peering through the microscope, looking closely, trying to figure out God. What is God doing? So the angels wonder, because they, they've never experienced salvation. They haven't experienced God's grace in the way that Christians have. So angels are wondering what it's like to experience the grace of salvation. They don't fully understand God's forgiveness of sin, because they've never sinned, at least not the good angels. And so in fact here, Peter says, they're continually looking, they're fascinated by what God does through believers. Why is Peter talking about this? Peter, Again, Peter's telling them how much God cares for them, how much God cares for you and me. This is an amazing love. So the ancient prophets, itinerant preachers, the exalted angels, what are they all pointing to here? There's a purpose in this, showing the greatness of salvation. They've all stood in service to this salvation. And so, my friend, do you understand? The fullness of your salvation has been the joyful business of God's servants for many, many centuries. This is what it's about. So no matter how difficult life's trials are, you know what this means for you and me? It doesn't, doesn't matter because Christians can face trials triumphantly because of the greatness of God's grace, He's given us salvation. Why do He do that? Well, God, 
gave them a salvation the prophets studied. We, we see here in, in verse 12, the Holy Spirit inspired this, did this work. The apostles preached the salvation, and we have the angels continuing to investigate God's great work in Christians. And so I hope that truth, as it was meant for the original recipients of this letter, I hope this truth will give you spiritual strength to remain faithful wherever God puts you. So here's the proposition I want you to walk away with today. Here's here's what Peter wants you to, to know. Here's what he wants you to do with this. So here's my proposition, that God wants you to remember your great salvation so that you can remain faithful to Him even during trials. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word? Particularly, may we understand just how secure salvation is and how great your salvation is. May we understand that you're the source of salvation. May we understand how this has come about. Open our eyes to these great truths so that as we go through trials and we are persecuted, that we would glorify You, we would give the right opinion of You as we suffer. And that the watching world and the angels would glorify You as we suffer. May they not look at us, but may they see You and why You are more than enough. Thank You that You are more than enough and that Your grace is sufficient and that your salvation is secure and great. May we glorify you in everything we think, we do, and we say, even in trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.